find something of value. The higher education community in South Africa is actually on the intellectualization. How central this humanity is. Welcome to The Academic Citizen. I'm your host, Nosipom Gomezun. The week after I submitted my PhD dissertation, I took my driver's test three times in three days and I failed each time. The written part, that was a breeze, but a uniformed traffic officer watching over my shoulder made me nervous and irrationally defiant. I tend not to do well with authority. The story I tell myself is that I don't need to learn how to drive. No, something something about my carbon footprint, something something about living in a big city and being able to Uber and use public transport. Uh, But really, I'm just terrified of failure. Watching productivity come resilience motivation videos, I hear the dignified words of Samuel Beckett, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. These messages have almost got me convinced that failure is an innocuous set of learning experiences to be taken on the chin on the turbulent road to success. Here, failure's bite is rendered toothless in the face of daring greatly. Yet, we live in an age where epic fail is a common part of our lexicon. A significant part of social media is dedicated to failures rendered spectacular. The embarrassment of a mistake and the attendant humiliation is given exaggerated sense of importance. Oh, the terror. The terror. What will people say? It's just kind of been blown up in cyberspace. Schadenfreude, the experience of pleasure or self-satisfaction that comes from witnessing the failure of others, is the proverbial bread and butter of tabloid news. Just a cursory glance at your Twitter timeline will show you how we seem to take great pleasure, guilty pleasure maybe, in this misanthropic game. The glee we feel at the misfortune of others due to their hubris or their incompetence is definitely not reciprocated when the tables are turned. We want our failures to be private affairs, treated with compassion or at least a bit of empathy. In this episode, we're going to delve into this very human experience of failure, my least favorite thing, which in part is why I thought it was important to reflect upon it. Writing on failure, I've cycled through several drafts, terrified that I'm going to fail at the task I've set myself. Should I tell you how many times this recording has failed? It's five. Do I let you in on the messy process of creating this podcast, the overthink? Is my voice popping? Oh my goodness, am I slurring? Surely I'm not slurring. Reading the literature on the physiological, the psychological and the social implications of failure, I am stutter shook at my cognitive biases. I'm frustrated by my hubris of failed I'm frustrated at that. We're gonna keep that in. Here we go. While reading the literature on the physiological, psychological, and social implications of failure, I am stutter shook at my cognitive biases. I'm frustrated by my hubris of failed ambition and remain tongue-tied, trying to walk the fine line between vulnerability and exposure. Failure deeply troubles my sense of perception management. Does this failure make me look incompetent? Yikes. This makes sense. After all, failure is painful. I mean, literally. As social creatures from an early age, our brains are very good at monitoring for perceived social threats. Experiments using functional magnetic resonance imaging scans, fMRI, have identified that an area of our brain called the anterior cingulate cortex, the ACC, becomes active when we experience social distress. 
the ACC is also involved when we experience physical pain and it looks like physical and social pain share some of the same circuitry in the brain. So when we say that rejection can hurt, it's because it can actually cause us to feel a type of pain. In 2017, the Journal of Behavioral Decision Making published a study that found that emotional responses to failure rather than cognitive ones are more effective at improving people's results. This sounds so counterintuitive, but Professors Nelson, Malcock, and Shiv found that people who produce cognitive responses to failure rather than emotional ones tend towards protecting themselves rather than focusing on self-improvement. Although it's unpleasant to feel uncomfortable about a mistake, bypassing the pain of failure is not ultimately an effective strategy if your goal is improvement. The decision-making strategist Annie Duke argues that smart people tend to struggle more with experiences of failure, leaning more towards cognitive rather than emotional responses. Her work shows how smart people tend to be better at fooling themselves because they tend to be better at reworking the data from their experiences of failure in order to fit a more comfortable prior mental model of self. Smart people tend to intellectualize their failures and they're smart enough to know that they shouldn't sound biased. Her advice for getting around this confirmatory style of thought is to be in a good group. In this way, you learn how to be curious about the pain of failure instead of explaining it away. See, you don't have to believe, let alone befriend the unpleasant thoughts that accompany failure, but acknowledging that they exist is half the battle won and reframing an experience. Learning to stay with the troubling feelings by feeling them instead of rationalizing them or suppressing them feels quite antithetical to the picture of the academic citizen. But who is this academic citizen that I'm imagining? Students in my class? I'm not really that concerned if they struggle, if they fail on their way towards a task. In fact, I applaud it. Who am I thinking of? Is it my colleagues? Maybe it's you. Yes, you. You with your research grant, your NRF rating, your impending promotion and successful book that seamlessly traverses abstract theory with gravitas and enough levity to render it accessible and commercially successful. You with your infallible regular writing practice, the picture of scholarly productivity and rigor. You, the dignified academic citizen. At least, what I project onto you. I envy you. The you who can turn lemons into lemonade and whose success feels inevitable. It feels embarrassing to admit that I envy how your form fits your function. This envy feels uncollegial at best and certainly cringe at worst. A throwback to season 6, episode 1, where we talk about envy. Before you offer me any platitudes about imposter syndrome, I would kindly ask you to cease and desist. I hate the concept of imposter syndrome. It implies this privatization and pathologization of fear. After all, imposter suggests the existence of an authentic or legitimate form. And I, dear listener, have never been one to take norms as decrees. But I do understand that there are always stakes at play. If you perceive failure as a threat to something important to you, your reputation, your job security, your dignity, if you believe failure puts you at risk, you're likely to experience distress, and that distress is totally understandable. The cousin to imposter syndrome is this other cognitive bias, the Dunning-Kruger effect, where people with low ability, low expertise, and low experience regarding a task or an area of knowledge tend to overestimate their ability or their knowledge. 
We want the imposter to dust themselves off from their languishing as underdogs and rise to the occasion, showing up the mediocrity of the delusional Dunning-Kruger person. Failure, in many ways, is really just not an option in the stories we tell. I've been fascinated by Quitlet for a long time, reading about people who leave their academic jobs in pursuit of alternative careers outside the academy is a titillating read for me. The overwhelming advice seems to be that failure is in fact an option, that sometimes perseverance is the foolhardy choice. Folks who pen Quitlet advise against the sunk cost fallacy, but it is difficult to let go of personal attachment to a project, especially if one has invested heavily in its success. In The Queer Art of Failure, Jack Hubblestump proposes low theory as a way to deconstruct the normative modes of thought that have established uniform societal definitions of success and failure. Instead of seeing failure as a dysfunction, Hubblestump recasts failure as a portal, opening up more creative ways of thinking and existing in the world. This is not simply a rebranding of failure as alt-success. Rather, like Stuart Hall, Hubblestump takes seriously the importance of reimagining what we call ideal performance in the first place. Personal and professional failure are an unavoidable component of life, yet in our institutions and social structures of value, certain bodies, economic positionings, neurotypical dispositions seem to create particular buffers or fail-safes for some more than others. This aversion to loss is deeply political. Failing safely ideally shouldn't be a privilege of a few who are presumed to be always and already competent. In our last episode, Professor Ikani examined breathing as a modality of knowledge, taking us on a journey from diving expeditions to the horrors of the respiratory pandemic we are still facing and the air we breathe in our cities. The episode on breath explored recipes for disaster management, and so it is only fitting that in this episode we follow up with an examination of failure. So let's take a deep breath here. And savor the erudite insight of the great Tony Morrison, who says that failure is information, a necessary diagnostic tool that helps us figure out what is and is not working. In this episode, we're going to mine this data to try and find and understand the affective cartographies of failure. Join me as we traverse the choppy waters of success with advocate Tato Tweba, asking what failure means when you are already presumed to be successful. We ask who gets to fail with astrophysicist Dr. Stabile Kolwa, Unpacking the enabling conditions for risk and failure, we take a hard look at representation and narratives of success with media studies lecturer Dr. DiMarco. Come with us. I'm Tato Weber. I'm from Maseru. I'm an advocate of the courts of Lesotho. I'm an artist. I practice here in Lesotho. And I study for a PhD in law at the Faculty of Law in UWC in the Public Law Department. I think generally I'd say I'm interested in like society and the mechanics of society. Like in law, I'm interested in like the relationship between the state and individuals. 
I've worked in a lot of unrelated research. This year I was working on a project on the impact of COVID on youths and did a lot of qualitative research for that. So field work and like just kind of being very anthropological. But I think that kind of work is the culmination of my interests and kind of where I draw parallels between like the different kind of things that I work with in art and law and yeah in social research basically. I'm very interested about your practice and your relationship to the legal fraternity. I'm interested in why you left being an advocate of the courts of Lesotho because that is you know I think for many people when they're thinking about success that is like the pinnacle of success is here you are young, gifted and black, and you're an advocate of the courts and you decide to leave the legal fraternity in that form. So maybe you could start by telling us, why did you leave? I don't want it to sound like I left a long time ago. (laughs) I wouldn't even say I left. I don't necessarily leave things, but I left at the beginning of the pandemic or like lockdowns in 2020. And it's out of frustration. I think, especially for legal practice here at home, there's the kind of disillusionment. When I was in school, like throughout my whole school time, I've always been in debate, you know. So I've always kind of liked the compelling aspect of law, like convincing people of a particular perspective, a particular position, and also being compelled, you know, like, arriving at a particular opinion because someone engaged me like on most of my doubts. So when I went into practice, I went into practice with like that energy of we're going to change the world (laughs) one argument at a time. But then it was very like procedural. There was a lot of emphasis placed on process, how you serve, how you address the court, how you dress, like the theatrics of law. In my view, there was a lot of other things that concerned the legal fraternity other than making substantive arguments. During the time that I was practicing, because I practiced for like six months from when I left Cape Town in 2019, and the whole time I didn't get to speak a case substantively, like it was postponements, like objections based on you should have served in this manner. And I get frustrated by that. I'm very bad at it. So, yeah, it was frustrating me because I couldn't get to the part that I'm interested in. What was like your process <laughs> of deciding to pivot away from, I guess, the courtroom with all its many rituals and procedural expectations? Like, I want to kind of get access into what were you thinking about in terms of like deciding to pivot because I think it's something that many people might find like overwhelming to even consider like leaving such a secure, clear pathway. Maybe I should just say I feel uncomfortable about calling myself an advocate because I didn't practice that long, right? So I think my time in practice would probably be a culmination of maybe two years at most. I practiced in 2014 when I came back from law school and then went to do my master's in 2015. And then I was in school until 2019 when I came back. So I was never really in it in terms of like practice every day. And maybe that's why it was difficult to get used to the logistical aspect of 
actually being able to appear in court and speak before a judge and make arguments and, you know, get to the compelling part. But I think because I was coming from a more academic background where that's what you jump into, you make an argument right away, that alienated me even further from like caring about procedures and protocols and rituals and all the other airs about practice. I find it really interesting how Tato thinks about these different spaces from the law school, the courtroom, and then being back in, I guess, the proverbial classroom of being a doctoral student and how she understands these different spaces and what they produce in her and her practice and her at least disposition towards failure. In academia, it's kind of, I think, both in legal practice, because I feel the same way about legal practice that I do about school, like academia, which is that, and this is personal, I don't think this is like a general thinking on my part, but I don't enjoy the processes of those enclaves, the way I enjoy the process of making collages. I love also like the finished, because in school, my issue was the process. Like, that's what I failed, I think, because the issue was how do you write? How do you cite? How do you make an argument? And for me, I'm not very academic. And, you know, like, I grew up very rurally. And I think the way that I process knowledge is that it kind of becomes part of my life as opposed to something that's archived in my mind that I can pull out. You know, like, whenever someone's like, oh, do I have this case? And I'm like, oh, yeah. It's how you deal with it, you know, like it's, for me, it changes my whole life. You know, like when something clicks, it changes my whole perspective, not just like a particular subject. So that was a difficult thing to communicate without paying homage to institutional things, you know. So I remember thinking my issue with this person, my supervisor at the time, is a language barrier, even though we're communicating in English, like this is a colored man from Cape Town who has a different experience of the English language that I had, because when I had a Malawian person reading my work, they could get it because we have the same like English dialect, very British colonial, a little pompous, you know. And so my supervisor was always like, I don't understand why you won't just say it simply. And so that's what we were fighting about, how to write the English language. I didn't study English. <laughs> this is English from high school. <laughs> so <laughs> those were the things that I had to pay respect to that made me very impatient about getting to the point that I was getting to, which wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> anyway. So I think for academia and practice, I don't enjoy the processes of actually getting to communicating the idea that you have. Don't enjoy it. I want to know about your early notions of success, where you get your sense of the narrative of what a successful person is. Like in high school, there was like this big obsession with success, like academic success. And just generally, like, in my high school, they used to have, like, each year an inspirational figure. I'll just call it that. So there was this obsession with, like, I went to a girls' school. 
So like Margaret Thatcher type success and they would give you all these awards, like on awards day, your name would ring throughout the day so that all the other kids in the lower classes look at you and they want to be like you. And when I was in high school in my last year, I was one of these inspirational figures. Even like the idea of being a lawyer. When I was young, I would say I want to be a lawyer. But I think it was my teachers who were like, yeah, you have to do law. Like in keeping with the momentum of like that high school model citizen type thing. So I think from like throughout high school like and throughout law school, there was always that thing at the back of my mind. Like you can't fail. People are watching type thing. Maybe because I used to talk a lot. But my oldest sister was very clever, and because Lesotho is a small country, people in my high school knew that, and they would say, oh, the twin sisters, so clever, they're probably so clever, and then the whole school was like, oh, these kids are so clever, and then on began the pressure. And so it always felt like one had to go into that, one had to step into that as opposed to like, oh, figuring out that this is my intellectual temperament you know, like always panting. Because for me, I was like, mm, I don't feel very confident about these sessions, so I'm going to have to do really good so that at least I'm not very far from what these people are talking about. And that's kind of what happened also because when I was in UDABs, in this program that I was in, they would then select like one student to do a PhD. And it was kind of like high school once more where they're like, oh, Tato, this will be you. Even though I wasn't, I was like maybe the fifth best student or whatever, like really mid. Like this is not even, I said this to you the first time we talked about this, it's not even like a so, an issue about self-confidence. Like it's facts, it's reality. So I don't know, I think I've been keeping that momentum from high school until like maybe 2017 when I started kind of slacking off on my PhD and it was like I need to feel what it's like to maybe disappoint like what happens if I disappoint someone like what shatters I'm really curious to learn more about your artistic practice and moving towards the creative space to articulate many of the concerns that you had both as a practitioner of law and also as a doctoral student. I'm really curious to find out about the relationship between collage and your research interests. So I was collaging before, like I thought about it seriously as something that can engage with bigger issues, you know, like more academic issues or even something that I could connect with my legal background. So like I used to have this app on my phone and it was just like something that I really enjoyed doing when I'm on the train from campus and I don't have Wi-Fi. I can just, you know. So when I get radicalized then in 2015 and I start writing my thesis, I thought very differently from my well-tempered master's thesis. I was really changed by this paper by this law professor. His name is Paul Ocheje, and he's a public law professor, I think somewhere in Canada, last I checked. And he was writing this paper about corruption in Africa, and the paper is called When Law Fails. And he was talking about 
kind of like this Du Bois an idea of the like duality, like the fragmentation of a person in these systems, you know. But I think collage became easier because I realized that you can kind of make out an essay with one collage. Because in practice, the thing that was difficult to convince my supervisor was that to call international anti-corruption law colonial was a reach. And that's because of all the rigor you that's required in making a statement like that about in law generally. The rigor it would require, that, that would be like if I had to make that argument in court, the rigor it would require for someone to agree with me, even if they do agree with me, is too labor intensive for me because we can all see it. So yeah, I didn't like to, like, for example, I'm like, where are you going to find the chat between the World Bank and the IMF when they said we want to use this policy as a way to induce like compliance with structural adjustment, for example? Because the way I see it, that is kind of what drove international lawyers are you want money to pay your loans you have to say this and then people said this and now we have this law that's kind of like not working tato's work in collage allows her to engage with the messy and contradictory aspects of negotiating between local and international law freeing herself from the strictures and rituals of what it means to succeed in making an argument in written text she registers these complexities in her collages allowing us to engage in new ways of seeing failures and visions of our interconnected world. Tato's collages are a physical manifestation of reimagining what we take for granted by placing disparate images in conversation to produce uncanny new ways of seeing. Her journey has been one of dancing with instead of against failure, pivoting and redefining success on her own terms. From the courtroom to the gallery via PhD program, we jet off now to outer space, less afraid, I guess, of the black hole of success. We unpack some enabling conditions for failure with Dr. Sabile Kolwa. Hi. Okay, I'm Dr. Sabile Kolwa, and I'm based at the University of Johannesburg Physics Department. At the moment, we don't have a specific astronomy department, but my specialization is astronomy and astrophysics. Within that, I am concerned about and interested in the evolution of galaxies. So we have this very exciting project and we're very happy to host it. It's called the Meerkat Telescope. And it is an array of dishes that collect radio energy, radio light, some would say, from space, from different objects in space. And I'm collecting that type of light from galaxies in order to understand how some of the first galaxies in our universe formed shortly after the Big Bang and also develop a narrative of how they evolve with cosmic time. So that's essentially what I would like to do and continue doing for the rest of my existence, hopefully, provided academia doesn't stress me out enough that I want to make a run for it. I'm passionate about developing uh, science and technology in South Africa. That's the most important thing. And I hope that astronomy 
specifically this telescope will have a good knock-on effect on employment and also the development of a scientific culture and a technologically acute society over the next half century, hopefully. Do model schools. <laughs> Yo, I mean, the fact that you're an astrophysicist blows my mind. I think it's completely incredible. And I think many of us were keenly following images of the James Webb Telescope and we were like, what? Just mind-blowing visually before you start getting into the existential kind of realization of it all where you're like, wait a minute. It's kind of like mind-blowing to kind of situate oneself as an individual human in the larger cosmos. And so my question to that is, how did you become interested in astrophysics and astronomy? What is your research trajectory that led you into this exploration? Yeah, so I would say there is a defining moment in my life that sparked this general interest in astronomy. Before that, I guess my foundation was being a kid who was always interested in learning stuff, understanding the natural world, how things work. I mean, it was easy for me to open an encyclopedia and just start reading, just start consuming information about various topics. That to me was a great way to pass the time. So with that, I discovered a book at the school library when I was in grade seven. It was a Dolan Kindersley book on space and time. That was its title. And it went over various topics within astronomy, of course, geared to the young reader. And one specific topic within that entire book stood out to me. It was the description of so-called black holes, which the book defined uh, using very, very high-level jargon, but I appreciated that, as singularities in space-time from which not even light can escape. And they went on to describe them as objects beyond which the laws of physics break down. I thought, what? That's crazy that there's actual objects in space. And up until this day, okay, within a continuum of human existence, we still do not understand what is going on inside these objects? And that fascinated me to no end. It seemed so fantastical, but it was real. It was based on real observations, and now we, we actually have concrete evidence of black holes. Having imaged two of them with the Event Horizon Telescope, one in M87, and now also at the center of our own galaxy, the Milky Way. But still, their physics remains a mystery, and that's really what got me on this trajectory, and of course, ended up at university taking astronomy courses, the University of Cape Town, through undergrad, and then all the way through honors. I managed to find some very cool research collaborators at Oxford and the University of the Western Cape who helped me through my master's degree, and then went on to Germany, where I did my PhD, also met some brilliant scientists and formed these awesome collaborations where I'll be able to continue my work. Your own experience as a young scientist, you know, from high school to university, a lot of people's experiences have been to be very quite intimidated by the sciences because it's maths, it's physics, and it's complicated. It feels complicated. I myself uh, struggled really hard with physics at school and I was forced to take it and I was like, I feel like a failure. Like, come to English, come to history. I'm like winning, winning, winning. And I think for me, it was one of my first experiences of failure of kind of going, 
I'm not excellent at this. How did you experience your kind of like scientific education, especially in context of your peers who might have found it a very intimidating or foreboding field? I started uh, out my education at, at Bits University, um, where I enrolled in a, an electrical engineering course. Needless to say, I was not interested at all in engineering. And I think I realized in that moment that a very important component of my ability to focus, or at least uh, I'm only able to focus when something interests me. But I wasn't interested at all in, in electrical engineering. I found it very mundane. There was a, a mundanity about it, I, uh, and uh, I couldn't really... Uh, find the interest. So uh, I ended up uh, flunking out of that uh, after the first year, just dismally, and then tried to figure out what, what it is I really want to do. And that's how I ended up at the University of Cape Town in the astronomy and physics track. First year was great, although I did find physics, yeah, there was, it was that slight intimidation, definitely. It was challenging. But thankfully, I had some good peers who study groups with and uh, was able to to get by. I think the real challenge began when the content became tough. <laughs> That's when there was the sense of, oh, I don't know if I can do this. And unfortunately, there were several times that I let that intimidation interfere with my ability to apply myself. Because now, when I look at the content that we covered during undergrad, and of course, having been exposed to it several times over, it's sunk in and it's not something that I cannot handle. I think really at the time, perhaps it could have been a, a lack of self-confidence that in fact held me back. It knocked me back a few steps that I didn't realize that my competence was at the right level. I just needed to banish those thoughts of self-doubt and thoughts of questioning my sense of belonging. And I'll talk about this transition from first year to second year because in our first year class, uh, it was quite a diversity of students. There were definitely a lot more girls, also a lot more African students. So the environment seemed to me perhaps warmer than in second year when all of these students became intimidated, I'm sure, and decided to drop out of the physics track and pursue something else within the Faculty of Science. And suddenly there were only five or something girls and I was the only black girl. Yeah, things began to feel tough, in fact, because the environment itself kind of sending me this message that this is probably too hard for you, even though that is not the truth at all. That can sink in as a false belief. False beliefs definitely can begin to sink in when you look around you and you're the only one and you begin to wonder why. Why? Maybe this is just not for us. You know, I understand now that that is another way in which imposter syndrome creeps up. But at the time, you know, I was young and just trying to get by. Thankfully, I did manage to pass. I didn't fail a single course. This time, I was pursuing astrophysics, not engineering. <laughs> I didn't fail any courses. But definitely, when I look back, I think to myself, if I had gone into that mega confidence, I'm convinced I would have been on the dean's list. I'm very convinced of it. Because I think so many of us are working on, we're using just a morsel of our potential, just a tiny morsel. And the gap between us you know, being average and being great often involves a lot of limiting beliefs that we've internalized about ourselves and what we are capable of. Definitely, limiting beliefs can really, they can block you in a big, big way. We don't even realize at all how much damage they do. 
when I learned of the term imposter syndrome in 2011. And I was like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> Never really thought I was an imposter. Like I'm part of the continental majority. I've always felt, you know, there's no room that I didn't belong in. And then suddenly in my master's year, I was like, oh, snap. There's this thing people keep mentioning. It's called imposter syndrome. Maybe I have imposter syndrome. And my dear friend was like, is it imposter syndrome? Or are you made to feel like you're an imposter? Is your environment kind of creating this kind of limiting belief in the language that you were using? And I think that's such an important part of like what I wanted to reflect on when we're thinking about failure is that there are sometimes these other intervening things in our environments that define what markers of success are. And some of those markers are things you can't do anything about, like the gender identity you have or the racial identity that you've been given, that you are assumed not to belong in a place. You're assumed to be an imposter. And I think that's something that is often missed when we're talking about what is success, what is failure, is that sometimes the environment in and of itself has defined itself kind of antagonistically towards certain people being in that space. And I wanted to kind of ask you about something you'd mentioned earlier about your experiences in Europe and how you found that experience of going to do a doctoral program at an international university outside of the continent. So it's international to us. How did you find that you were received as a young person coming from the African continent, going into a field that is not necessarily assumed to be a space for young black women from the continent? My perception was, yeah, there, there's a lot of questions, questions like you in this program, what's up with this? Because up until that point, as far as I know, in the history of this program, they've not had a black African student. I might be wrong. I would need to speak to the founders of this program to know that this is a fact. That's just my speculation. The difficulty is, though, in attempting to bring this topic up I'm concerned that I would encounter a barrier, and that barrier is defined by the apprehension that I saw with regards to discussing race in Europe. There's a, a huge barrier that prevents that. So, of course, in South Africa, we live in a post-apartheid society, so we have more of a, an ease of conversation. I guess we're more comfortable with this topic. And... The U.S., I mean, they've developed so much jargon and ideology around the concept of, of racial identity that even the way that we discuss race is based on a theory that's been laid out by people such as Bell Hooks and Kimberly Crenshaw. They've helped us describe our existence and describe how we move through the world. I'm sorry, too, that that was you know part of that experience. And I'm sure there were other experiences that were welcoming. But I think there's something that I want to touch on there that you've just brought up. I remember in 2016 when I was teaching at UCT and it was, I guess, in the middle of the Roads Must Fall, Fees Must Fall movement and encountering a very bizarre kind of conversation, which I'm curious whether or not it is something that you are still seeing as a young Black woman working in the STEM field, where people were saying that the conversations about decolonization are humanities-related questions. They are not appropriate for the sciences because the sciences are a universal language, you know? We're all doing maths in China, in Germany, 
in India, we're all doing the same maths. We don't actually need to talk about identification practices. We don't need to talk about disciplinary culture. And I'm reminded of, you know, the work of Bruno Latour, who speaks about how science as a larger organizing structure is itself a culture, right? That there are particular cultures that inform what is deemed scientific. That is almost the hidden curriculum of the scientific method. So we're out here, we're in our labs, we're doing our experiments, but there's this other culture that we don't talk about. And I'm curious to make my question more specific about where are we in the conversation of decolonizing science? and decolonizing STEM. Are you finding that that is something that you can have as a conversation now that you're working in South Africa? Or are you finding that it is still not something that is able to be discussed about what does it actually mean to decolonize science? Yeah, definitely. Now living in South Africa, I do find it less tense having these kinds of conversations because I'm not the only one speaking on this topic. And that that immediately gives me that sense of, of comfort. As George Orwell said, sanity is not statistical. So even though you might be the only one who has a viewpoint, that doesn't necessarily mean you're crazy, but it does help to speak up on your viewpoints when others around you mirror that. So yeah, the conversation is is less tense and it's more welcome here. Although since as we, we know the scientific culture to be, yes, it's a global culture that we all practice as scientists across the world, it is very much defined by the European way, the European paradigm of thought, European methods for investigation and applying the scientific methods. It is very, very Eurocentric, definitely. But the conversation on how we can decolonize um, science in general, I find might be stifled in a way by our acceptance that this is the norm, that this is how how science should be practiced, and that by changing it, will almost require a complete deconstruction and rebuilding that it seems that, that it would almost be an impossible task. In physics, for instance, our theory and our understanding of physics has already been established. But to decolonize that, yeah, yeah, what does it actually mean? That's a tough one. How, how do you decolonize physics? I'm still also questioning that. But as I said, thankfully, there are scientists, physicists as well, specifically African physicists who who are open to having these discussions. Really fascinating that you've brought up kind of citation metrics, which I think in the scientific community carry a different kind of power and work in quite a different way than perhaps in the humanities, at least in my experience. Because I think those metrics, whether we want to or not, help us define who is successful and who is failing at a particular endeavor, you know, if you have low citation count, then you are not as successful and may perceive yourself as kind of failing in kind of ascending to the heights of your field. And I'm always like really curious about how we come up with these measures of success, whether it's citation counts, whether it's particular algorithms that push particular kinds of content. I mean, I think not since Neil deGrasse Tyson did we ever have a African-identified individual at the forefront of science? It has always been, you know, your Einsteins as like these are the figures of scientific endeavor. And I find that really just, it's not really a question, but I think it's really fascinating that like a field so 
deeply committed to objectivity and rationality is also so deeply embedded in all these social systems and structures that are inherently unequal, that were created to kind of prop up one particular gender, one particular racial group, one particular global kind of sphere as the center of objectivity, the center of rationality. So it's not so much a question as just kind of like an observation around how these metrics kind of become self-perpetuating and become centered in our understanding of whether we're succeeding or we're failing. I want to kind of move us back to one of the first things you said when we started this interview, you were talking about black holes as kind of like these objects in space where laws of physics break down, which for me was like, ah, failure. So there's failure, right? But I would also imagine that the failure of those laws in a black hole does not inherently make it not worth being curious about. In fact, people are more curious because they're like, how come this doesn't work? And yet instinctively, when something doesn't work outside, I guess, the lab, we go, oh, well, that was not successful. Uh, I'm a bit embarrassed. I'm a bit shamed. So I wanted to kind of hear from you as a physicist, how do you conceive of failure? How do you think of failure? Because failure happens all the time in nature. We have particular laws that we think govern particular processes. And then you're like, oops, there's a black hole. Those laws don't apply there. So I wanted to hear, what are your associations with failure? How do you conceive of it? How do you theorize, philosophize, feel about this concept of failure? I've actually got a tattoo on my shin, which is a small extract of a quote by Samuel Beckett, who is a playwright. He specialized in so-called existentialist theater under the genre of absurdist plays. And he said, if you've ever tried to do something and you need to try again and then fail again and then fail better. So that was a very important quote to me because it reminds me, and it's my mantra, that everything that you apply yourself to in life, everything should have a moment where it doesn't work. It doesn't go in your favor it defies your expectations, maybe in an unpleasant way. And that's a moment for me. I've learned to see that as a moment of clarity, of redirection, of strengthening, of character building, that I've done everything that I can to reframe the concept of failure, and to understand it as a, a process in life. It serves to awaken you and to, to remind you of core values, for instance, or or perhaps just gives you a hint to try something new, to try something different. Yeah, I mentioned redirection. The way that we've framed the concept of winners and losers in, in life and society, I feel, is detrimental in, in many ways to how we think about our endeavors in life. And also the association of failure with, with loss as a project doesn't work the way you expected it to. You don't earn the research grant that you had applied for. You don't get into the university you wanted to. You don't get the job. That that is a loss, and, and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be at all. It's a redirection. It's an awakening. Yeah. I do everything in my power to eliminate the negative or to reframe, just to reframe failure as something that is not negative, just in simple terms. And where do you think you got that muscle from? Where do you think you attained that kind of dexterity to kind of see failure not as loss but as redirection are there any particular experiences you can recall whether maybe 
in your schooling or home life where you were able to kind of ascertain that failure is not necessarily loss. I'm like, wow, that's very profound and very positive that you see failure as redirection. I definitely personally struggle with feeling failure as a, yeah, a full stop. And it takes me several goes to kind of pick myself up after, you know, not successfully receiving a grant or not getting a paper published that you thought was excellent and you've reviewed it millions of times and then you send it off and they're like, no, I don't think it's going to work for this journal. And you're just like, ah, where did you get that dexterity? I might have had some of these lessons during my schooling. I do remember being a student who was obsessed with with receiving straight A's. And in primary school specifically, we had this list that would come out every school term. It was called the top 20. Essentially, it was a chronological list of the children who got the highest averages over all their subjects. And I was always on a mission to be in the top 10 at least. And if I could get into the top five, that was that was the best, the best ever. <laughs> but there was a time <laughs> I think I ended up in, in number 14 or something and I was so upset in <laughs> one term and like I, I looked at the list and and I walked away from it with you know downcast with my, my head tilted down and damp eyes <laughs> and one of my teachers I think my grade four teacher Miss Napier pulled me aside and said number 14 is very good that's brilliant that's still brilliant you're still in the top 14 you know she gave me words of encouragement. I don't remember what she said, but I, I just, I remember that what you've done is still good, even though you're not in the position you expect it to be. You're not in that top tier position. You still made it onto the top 20. And I think maybe that was the first time that I had internalized this idea that, you know, success is, it's not always relative, that it could be something that is interior to you. It exists within your interior life that if you're happy with what you've done, with the effort that you put forward, even though relative to those around you, it's not considered an, an incredible success. You still, you, you put your all into it and you did your best. And that in itself, you can define that as a success. So I guess it's learning to, to move my thinking from the, the exterior, the I exist relative to so-and-so and I compare myself to so-and-so, but rather consider yourself as a, someone who's who's running a race by themselves you're just you're on the track field that's how I visualize it I'm on the track field by myself and as long as I get to the finish line I'm happy so I think that when things don't go well that's when I transition to the interior and begin to think of what have I done did I give it my all am I happy with the effort I put in if I'm not then I'll just try again try harder next time sure I mean, you know, you just said the word black excellence and I kind of got goosebumps because I've also spent a long time reflecting on, I think particularly for my generation, we were the the generation of firsts. We were the first to integrate uh, historically white institutions and you weren't just supposed to be average, you know, getting by as a student who was getting solid C's was not good enough. You had to be the best because you were offered an opportunity that other people didn't necessarily get access to. And I worry, I worry what that's done to me and members of my generation, that the idea of Black excellence has also kind of created a particular kind of disposition 
to failure, that you can't afford to fail. You can't afford to run a race on your own terms because you are a statistical anomaly. And so you need to kind of be the best kind of representation of women, of queer people, of (laughs) Black people in that space. Do you ever feel that that was a part of your experience choosing a field that is very male-dominated, not dominated by people who are identified as African, who identify themselves African. What did Black excellence kind of do for your thinking? Was it a motivating factor? What was it? Let me not put words in your mouth. <laughs> yes, Black excellence, yes, for, for a time being, it was a motivator and it did, it did drive me until I came to the realization that it can be very unhealthy, that it's, it's an unhealthy way of living. And I began to slowly realize how quietly insidious this concept of black excellence can be when I thought about my fellow students, especially when I was in my scientific program, and thinking they are not on a mission to prove anything. (laughs) You know, they're not on a mission to to show, yes, we can do this, we can be here. They're relaxed, you know, (laughs) they're not wearing themselves out. And I thought, okay, you know, because when you're relaxed, your mind is clearer and you're able to think about just, just doing your work. And I thought, I began to realize this, this could be a cognitive load. that It's an extra thing to think about when actually all I should be thinking about is the scientific method and how to apply it within my research topic. That's it. I should be thinking about the physics and the math, not the physics and the math. And also, how can I show that I can be so that I convince them that the black women can work in astrophysics. I mean, that in itself is, it can make you sick. It can make you ill. And what really concretized these concepts that I was developing in relation to black excellence was reading a book by Jelaine Kuniani. I hope I said that right. She's a psychologist, a British psychologist who wrote this amazing work called Living Wild Black. And uh, there's a chapter she dedicates to being black in the workplace. And she gave anecdotes of people who had consulted her for her psychological services or people who had come to her her rooms for counseling. Two of her clients experienced actually mental breakdowns, serious mental breakdowns as a result of being burnt out. And she was using them as an example of, because of course these are very, well-accomplished individuals in their fields. But she she noted that both of them were overworking themselves. They were working themselves to the bone and and saw the connection between their work ethic and this concept that they should be on a mission to prove that they are excellent as Black people, that they'd earned their place wherever they were. They'd earned their place and that they were not tokenized exactly. So what I see often is especially when a person is tokenized within a work environment, they tend to, to go out of their way at times like it, unrealistic and unhealthy ways to prove that they earned their place, that they should be there, which is why I'm actually against, yes, tokenism or hiring just on the basis of gender or, or racial identity because it can actually lead a person into a place of mental distress as even when they're in that environment, those around them might, in very quiet ways, insinuate that they're only there because, yeah, you're only, we're only hired because we needed such and such. 
a person so that even when you genuinely accomplish your goals, for instance, your awarded research money or the students that you're teaching do well, they pass brilliantly and they enjoy uh, attending your lectures or publishing good quality papers in high-level journals and all of that, there'll always be that, that question of, is it only happening? Because they are, you know, it follows on, it, it sticks to you. It sticks to you that <laughs> your genuine accomplishments will always be somehow tied back to, to your identity, which is such a ludicrous thought. Your identity is the reason why you are accomplishing this. And in, in some ways, you can say that because I have acknowledged about moving through the world as a black woman is a character building exercise, that there are ways in which you learn to become resilient as a person with an intersectional identity, that those who don't have intersectional identities, they'll never understand how you, through just survival, that you developed character traits that help you move towards your success. So yes, you can, you can say I'm, I'm successful because I'm a black woman. Definitely being a black woman has, has developed my character in a way, but I'm not just constantly being favored, that there is actual brilliance here. It's not just favor after favor because of my identity, but it is somebody who has overcome obstacles and has learned many lessons and is able to apply them and as a result, can be brilliant and is brilliant. Our identities can make us susceptible to assumptions about our competencies. When a nation's cultural values prop up symbols of success for a population at large, while its social structure rigorously restricts or completely eliminates access to approved modes of acquiring these symbols of success, we end up with this warped idea around excellence. We turn now to a conversation with Dr. DiMarco about the failures of the Rainbow Nation, and we try and name some of the unnamed and invisible labors of academic citizens. My name is DiMarco. I lecture in media studies at Wits University. I feel like for a long time, although I don't feel entirely apart from this work, my work was about kind of film and visual culture stuff and race and gender and very much around like this, I was very kind of obsessed with thinking through these like Rainbow Nation representations. How does it work? What do we see? I suppose to be honest, I was more obsessed with trying to point out the failures of it, like the failures of Rainbow Nation. So that was a lot of my work for a long time, I think. Like pretty much most of my grad school experience was that, but playing around with different cultural spheres. And then I would say in the last couple of years, like, yeah, like last two years or so, I've really been thinking about how, I don't think disappointing is quite the right descriptor, but I'll use it anyway. Like how disappointing academia can be, how it needs to box you, how you need to have like this clear, very important project and how that plays out needs to appear in these very specific areas for other people in your world to recognize your work as valuable And I found it very frustrating, and I think we'll speak about quite a bit of that today, so I won't kind of harp on about it too much. As recipients 
of the opportunities of a new democracy and the Rainbow Nation, there is this pressure for many young people who grow up in the post-1994 era of South Africa. There's this pressure to be thriving because this generation, I guess, called the Born Free, didn't experience the exact same hardships of the pre-democratic era and yet are still facing their own struggles, right? Our own struggles. And I am interested in your view on these struggles and your personal connection to the failure of the Rainbow Nation. I, I suppose, like you, am a product of that early post-apartheid generation of people who got a lot of opportunities that our parents simply did not have. A lot of that to do with education and thus with the kind of upward mobility, et cetera, et cetera. And I grew up in Cape Town in a quite traditional colored home. I found it really interesting having grown up in a home like that with a lot of like seeing a lot of activism stuff happening. Like my dad was really into black liberation theology. It's still a big thing for him with a cohort of ministers at a particular time. It's like a very particular kind of moment that 80s, you know, like the 80s basically. And so it was kind of born into that. And so being one of those first very, very early post-apartheid kids, Model C, what, what, what. It was so much a part of how I was raised, I guess, like, this is a very special experience you're having. And the older I got, the more I was like, this is so bizarre. This makes no sense. This isn't special. This is, this is weird. And then it took, yeah, when I got to Vits for kind of honors and then stayed for masters, those were my questions. My questions were, were deeply personal around like, colored identity stuff, how flawed and problematic coloredness was. Talk us through how the project of the Rainbow Nation, which I know you've highlighted is flawed and has failures, but also there's something particularly troubling about it as a concept because it was at this high political level and the rest of the nation, I guess, was expected to follow and buy into its idea. So I want to know a bit more about how you conceptualize or think through these questions in your own research. And then later with the PhD, I was just really interested in that moment where Ubuntu becomes, you know, the memory of Nelson Mandela on that stage and he's being inaugurated and it's like, that's the moment. And now we're in success mode. You know, it's like, success, success, success. And you're like, no, ESCOM is dying. We haven't had water for three weeks. We're not winning. But also that's part of the project, but it was never written into the project. So it's it's completely illegible for some and, and highly legible for others. Because, of course, there are people who have also been in, like, really dire economic conditions. The very concept of that success has always been abstract to them. Yeah, so I feel like we actually live in a state of failure, except that we put so much pressure on, I don't know, Tutu's purple coats. I am really curious to know how you made sense of failure as we transitioned from face-to-face teaching 
to remote learning, to hybrid learning, how are you conceptualizing your teaching practice and how you think about failure in these times that are so deeply uncertain and so fraught? How do you make sense of it in your classroom practice? Failure in the classroom for me, I feel, is something that operates on two different levels. You know what's funny is that, I mean, this was a lot of what lockdown teaching was like. You know, you're trying to get through content with hundreds of students and you can't all have your videos on because we can't all afford that. And your kids are crying. I mean, this is literally what it was like. I mean, on the one hand, you're thinking, great, this is interesting. Conceptually, this is great. But then you're also very aware there are probably these parents on the other side who are going, am I paying for this for like, am I paying for this you know, like listening to someone's whiny toddler on the other side. It's So for me, there were these various iterations of failure. Or you've just started even better. And you're trying to like whip out your slides. You're trying to be very like organized, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then there's like a child screaming and you can't focus on the other thing. Yeah, it's been really crazy. So failure in the classroom has been like this and then trying to hold space for other people's emotional stuff like whether it's a family member who's died someone's given birth like these big life things or someone has to work so they have to start hustling their classes because you know I want to know about how you think about the way in which failure and success are measured in academia, considering what we've been kind of talking about around the COVID period, its demands, and also needing to meet expectations of a upward career trajectory, how you kind of square these competing pressures, I guess, to kind of both be attentive to care in the classroom and to care for colleagues while simultaneously being asked to offer this labor of care in our homes and to ourselves and also being able to kind of be productive. Ooh, the big P word. So I'm just really curious to hear you think about how success in academia is kind of defined and maps out for your own experience. Because I'm not putting out research in the forms or at the pace that academia necessitates to equate success, you know, like in a neat fashion. And I think it's continuous work for me to think about these two parts of my everyday life and existence in a way where I'm not making the feeling like a failure and too normal a thing in this particular terrain, because I also think that academia is, it's a complicated project, which we all know. And the people who now don these PhDs and these like higher degrees, we don't look the same anymore as the old white men who used to be the holders of knowledge. Like I sit in in some of these fora and I think about how power plays out and how for the most part I just don't even have the capacity for it I know you similarly but for different reasons perhaps I just don't have it and 
Having to care for these children in the ways that I do requires such hard boundaries for me with them, but I still don't do enough in the kind of quote-unquote formal, proper academic space. I sign up for a lot. I've learned by trying to go for promotion, which I haven't yet, but even just putting my feelers out there about it, I've learned that in an academic space, you can be on committees, you can be helpful, you can teach in an interdisciplinary way, you can teach across departments, you can be the only one in your school to do that. The relationship between motherhood and academia for me is, in a way a kind of relationship that enhances or reminds me often about what does a successful academic look like? And that's not quite me. So I'm really curious to hear about Mother Lab Project because it has a lot to do with mothering in its literal form of rearing the youth. But also I'm really curious to hear about the ways in which you're thinking about mothering outside of just the biological care of your own offspring but also how mothering is a role that many of us who are assigned female at birth or inhabit the role of women often participate in in our workspaces in our interactions and how we might conceive of care i very much kind of in line with our theme or what we've been talking about. I mean, this is now my, I'm in my fifth year in a full-time tenure track position, I guess is how we would call it, right? Advits. And I'm now pregnant. I started Mother Lab for a whole bunch of reasons, mostly, in fact, professional And these have to do primarily with the fact that, and I think we spoke a little bit about this earlier, how institutions in this kind of new period of post-fees must fall, affects and labors around our students and how we teach and teaching in a black woman's body, etc. Because institutions assume that we can do that work, that we can do that heavy lifting, that it's possible for us and somehow not arduous, but also not like valuable enough to either A, get kind of materially compensated for that extra labor because it doesn't actually get seen as labor or B, to, you know, as would happen in the kind of formal registers of the university noting your maturation, your scholarly contribution, your communication to the community of thinkers, in a couple, very few registers, does academia consider the work that you do important enough, valuable enough, noticeable enough for you to be promoted formally. When you're doing things, and I put things in inverted commas, within the institution, in the institutional realm, that may be seven or eight out of ten of the things that is needed for the fulfillment of promotion or kind of formal recognition, 
when you're doing those things, but you're not also publishing, so you're showing up on a number of different fronts and you're exposing yourself to this additional labor, and then you don't have exactly, you know, the right number of publications or basically this is a, a long way of me getting to the point of saying the institution essentially will not recognize you. And they'll go, that's nice. We're glad that you're doing all of that work. We value that work. That is important labor. That is extremely heavy lifting, but that is not worth either formal promotion or or any other kind of formal, quote unquote, recognition from the university. This is incredibly kind of vulnerable out there stuff because although I've not been formally rejected from this process, I have been informally told that it wasn't quite the right time for me yet, even though I felt ready and like I was doing the work and like peers and kind of more senior colleagues, both within the institution and outside of the specific institution, were able to say or or did give me the feedback that they felt yeah, I think you could go up for promotion, you know. So for me, it was very interesting then that formally to learn suddenly that formally, actually, that was not the kind of encouragement I was getting because I wasn't able to tick a kind of final box that I, you know, I needed one more article, etc. And so it's been a really interesting learning curve, but it did really push me to think about How do I want my research to live out in the world? Where do I want it to live out in the world? And in which ways do I feel I can do that work without it feeling too arduous and too hard to do? Like where I'm ticking boxes, but I don't want to write in that style or it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't quite work for me. And this isn't really an argument about not wanting to conform. I had a really interesting conversation where someone said, you're pushing back against academia, but in some ways these are the rules of academia. And I was saying, yes, they are, but they're also the rules that have been set in a certain tone, in a certain context. And of course, that context is like many, many, many eons long. And I know that there are people doing interesting work within them. And then having a series of other conversations, particularly with women of color, where they were saying they've had exactly the same experiences as I have. And that essentially because we don't talk to each other, because we all feel like, oh, shit, I'm also failing. You know, you feel like, oh, Noisy is doing all the right things. She's getting promoted. You're not doing enough. You're not getting promoted. So you don't say anything, you know? You just kind of, you just kind of suffer in silence. You know, there are ways in which our own vulnerabilities get clipped and muted. So this has been a very serious kind of, I want to say, point of of thinking for me, but I also want to say almost like a meditation for this year, you know, has been what are the ways in which labor and care are fashioned as okay and acceptable, but not only okay and acceptable, but also like recognized, seen, visibilized. Who does that work when you are doing that work and people are going, no, that's not valuable enough. 
Then I thought about how the other kind of very big area of my life, of course, probably bigger than like showing up in my work capacity, although that is important and valuable and and I take it very seriously, is showing up in my day-to-day life and that care work that goes into caring for my kids and that goes into navigating what care looks like with a partner with kids, right? I am interested in mothers and that is incredibly subjective to my situation, but I started Mother Lab to really think about It comes from a very personal place where a mentor, a very dear mentor, Becky Zizwe Peterson, Prof. Peterson once said to me that in the humanities, our classrooms are our laboratories. You know, we're not in a lab mixing potions or things or liquids or figuring out, you know, big sciencey things, how to change cancer. But we are thinking through very big and complicated cultural formations, social formations, we're thinking about the constant piecing together and unhinging of the societies in which we live and not to kind of undervalue that work. And then I thought about how in my context, mothering is so much of that laboratory work too. And that so much of that lab work involves a lot of leaning into complexity and leaning into failure and leaning into simply not knowing things. Yeah, not knowing things means that you have to accept that you have to learn. Working on this episode, a dear friend probed me to reconsider fail-safes and reflect on what makes it safer for some to fail than others. We want to turn away and hide when we experience the shame and the indignity of failure. Yet research shows that these difficult emotions can be offset by connection, which reinforces the understanding that you won't be abandoned or ostracized when you experience failure. Watching myself and fellow academic citizens, including students, struggle with anxiety and burnout, I see a glaring disconnect between the values of iterative and curious learning and the deafening silence on how we can create a space for failure. A safe space for failure is not a capitulation to mediocrity, or worse still, indiscriminate affirmation. Everybody gets a participation star. Not quite. I'm thinking quite the opposite, actually. Safe fails create a culture of care that doesn't demand infallibility. We can't control how this happens outside of the classroom, nor can we inoculate ourselves from experiencing the pain of failure. But I think that we do owe it to our students and ourselves to create a more robust relationship with failure so that its pain isn't debilitating. Higher education is challenging. It's replete with critique, it's replete with false starts and many, many a brick wall. But the elegance of a well-written argument or proof or experiment is a work of art, and all good art, all pursuits worth striving for, are full of the indignities of failure. I hope that maybe this episode we've been able to kind of demystify some of those anxieties around failure, and we hope that you're going to join us next month as we explore journeys with Professor Ikani.
The Academic Citizen is produced and funded by the South African Research Chair in Science Communication, hosted at Stellenbosch University. The aims of our podcast are to create a space for wide and deep discussion about key issues animating higher education in South Africa, Africa, the Global South, and beyond. Create a space for interdisciplinary exchange for academic researchers and educators. Help researchers, educators, and scientists to tell their stories and listen to and learn from each other's insights and experiences. And create a space for science in all forms to be communicated in order to serve social justice broadly conceived. We welcome your feedback, opinions, and suggestions for future guests and show themes. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or visit our website www.the-academic-citizen.org. This episode was hosted and written by Nosipo Ngomezulu, produced by Lerato Magate, sound edited by Victoria Dalahop, and Fumani Joacha, who provides communication support. We would like to thank Advocate Tato Dweba, Dr. Stabila Kolwa, and Dr. D. Marco for contributing to this episode. <laughs>